Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 122 of the Feel and Film podcast. I'm Aaron, here with my co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. And we are both excited to be discussing the second winner in our Director Battle Month bracket, Akira Kurosawa's 1954 epic, Seven Samurai. I say that we're excited, but we're also a little bit nervous. This marks the first time that we have covered a film as long as this one. It's nearly three and a half hours long. And it's also our first black and white foreign film. Not that we've ever seen, mind you, but that we've ever talked about on the show. It's also a bit daunting anytime we discuss a film this highly regarded because we want to be sure and do it justice. We will get into that discussion soon, though. Uh, but first, let's do a quick recap of what we've been up to and also check in on how we're doing on our friendly little wager of bracket picks, shall we? Sounds good to me, buddy. Well, Patrick, I know that you don't have anything to share this week, and I have a lot, so I'm going to try to make this a little more rapid fire than I usually do. We'll see if I succeed or not. The uh, The week has given us something that it doesn't normally do in August, and that is shower us with films worth spending our money on, all right? August is like this dumping ground historically kind of you have january and then you have august those are like your months of uh oh we couldn't get our film in anywhere else so we got stuck uh because we weren't very good and so you don't expect a lot of good movies to come out but i would tell you that this has been a surprising august so far it began last week with christopher robin which wholeheartedly kind of swept me away and and made me feel really good inside and this week, we have three distinct films that pretty much could satisfy uh, the appeal of uh, to anyone, right? First, we have Black Klansman. This is the new Spike Lee film. You probably are going to hear a lot about this over the course of the year. This is the first kind of indie film, not first, but this is one of those first group of indie films from the year that is going to start garnering the best picture buzz around it. I have no doubt. Uh, I've looked at the ratings and see how critics have been responding to this, and I understand that it's very high. This premiered at Cannes. It has been just getting raved about ever since. Uh, it stars Adam Driver and John David Washington, who I didn't know until afterwards is the son of Denzel Washington. Now, hindsight's twenty twenty. Now that I know that, I was like, oh, totally can see that, <laughs> right? Um, he's, phen he's phenomenal. The, the, his performance is wonderful. I was really, really impressed with him. It's what made me seek out more information, which led me to realizing he was Denzel's son. So both he and Adam Driver are just, they have a great chemistry for this. And the dialogue that Spike Lee has written serves them very well. Um, they do a wonderful job. I love seeing Adam Driver pick all these different kinds of movies that he does. He, he is one of the most diversified actors we have working today uh, yeah. all over the place. I was, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's, it's so cool to see Adam 
<laughs> like I know him personally <laughs> <laughs> last week, seeing seeing him do such a wide array of movies, uh, and this coming off of uh, not just the Star Wars universe, but also um, the TV show that he was on for years and years and years on, on Asians Girls. And I just, I love the fact that we get another Spike Lee joint. Um, he was, Spike Lee was so big in the, in the nineties and uh, the, the latter part of that decade that I could take or leave his movies. It, it seemed at times because a lot of his, his movies have always been edgy and they've always been very much driven by a message and a solid message about race or about culture. And, and he's very unapologetic about that. So getting a chance to see black clans and hopefully at some point um, it will probably be when it hits the, uh, the DVD shelves or Blu-ray shelves or whatever we're calling those shelves now. But it's something that I'm definitely looking forward to when it came out or when it was initially previewing, I was like, this is definitely one I want to see. Yeah. I actually think that you will enjoy this as I did more than, we have previous Spike Lee films, and it's not because he's any less angry. He, he's very much angry, but for what I took away of this film, it, is it's more of a, it's more purposeful anger. It's more, it's less fiery, and it's more well thought out. Um, respectful in a way, I guess. He definitely has a lot to say about a lot of things, and the movie essentially is a comedy about these two cops. It's a real life story, which one of my criticisms is that I think it kind of doesn't give enough credence and weight to that fact that it's a, this really happened because it treats it with like so much humor, but mixed in with the humor are these real life showings of footage from movies of the past gone with the wind footage opens this film. There's a, a very, very powerful moving piece in the middle of the film where someone is, showing and talking about the movie birth of a nation and its negative um, effects. And the, the reason that it is incredibly racist while the clan is simultaneously watching it at a party and laughing about it. And you just, it, that kind of juxtaposition is all throughout this film. Um, it leaves you with a gut punch. It's powerful. And it's a reminder that there are still problems in America today. Um, it does not, pull any punches about going after trump either it, it doesn't allude to going after trump it just straight up goes after trump. like he's in the movie like you know like it's very on the nose and so that's where spike lee can be hit or miss for me this movie is mostly hit i, I say that i give it a high recommendation um i'm not in the best picture camp at all but i do think it's one of the better films of the year so far and it's worth seeing for sure it sounds like we're getting a more mature Spike Lee. I guess that would probably be the best way. To yeah, that's a great way to put it. Great. It, yes, that is a very, very good word for it. It feels like a much more maturely directed film from him. All right, so the second movie that has come out this week that I want to talk about is the Jason Statham joint, The Meg. All right, this is another sharp movie. I love sharp movies. Woo, we all love sharp movies. But when you saw the marketing for this film, I want to ask you, Patrick, what did you think this was going to be? Give me a shark movie comparison. Which... Did you did you think this was going to be more Jaws, more Sharknado, more Deep Blue Sea? Yes, <laughs> all of the above. Well, yeah, and, more well, Jurassic Park. Well, I was going to say this depended on before or after my Fallen Kingdom viewing because at first I was like, "Oh, cool, it's Jaws and steroids," and then after I saw Fallen Kingdom, I was like, "Oh, this is what Fallen Kingdom tried to be but failed at." That's kind of what I was feeling like it was going to turn out to be. Well. 
This is bonkers, okay? It is kind of like a high-tech, futuristic, science-y type of scenario where we've got this underground research station and and then they're, they're in the Marianas Trench and they discover a layer of like frozen cloud essentially that is blocking the deepest part of the ocean. And so, of course, they go to explore it. Um, previous to that, when we meet Jason Satham's character at the very beginning of the movie, there's some you know trauma that exists that we learn and that's why he's he's got to carry this trauma with him throughout the film gives him a little bit more of an emotional uh, performance to have it's not much like that's not why this movie exists but it's there you know i had a lot of fun um i went with a buddy of mine and we laughed out loud throughout the movie constantly i think that it's an above average film. It is a totally fun summer movie to go see on a big screen, especially with a crowded theater or with people, you know, it's also incredibly forgettable, uh, specifically the shark. So for me, the Megalodon is probably the least memorable part of this movie, which is weird when your name is the Meg, you know, like you would think that would be like the, like jaws. No one forgets jaws, but the Meg is very forgettable. Um, the action is stupid and insane and completely unrealistic, but it's awesome. And Jason Statham is just, he's so good, man. And he has some interactions with a child in this movie as well, a young girl, um, uh, the daughter of, of this uh, Chinese scientist that's on this platform that he's, he's there with. And his chemistry with her is fantastic. I mean, he graduated from a baby in uh, Fast and Furious 8 now to uh, this, or was it 7? I don't remember, but uh, I think it was 8, yeah. In 8, he had the baby, and now he's graduated to like a kind of a, a young 8 or 9-year-old age. So he, he's showing us a big range of working with kids of all ages. Um, it's a ton of fun, though. I highly, highly recommend going to see The Meg while it's in theaters. Don't wait for that one if you want to see it. At the very least, I think the... From a design point of view, I love, love, love the poster art that I've seen that advertises it. It's just very reminiscent of Jaws, but it also just really makes you think, oh, this is an amped up version of what Jaws, at least in some capacity, was or could be. That's exactly right. And it, it borders, it kind of hovers that line. Like it go, it's, it's definitely not realistic fully, but it doesn't go so far into Sharknado territory, right? Or even super shark territory like Deep Blue Sea. Now, I think something like Deep Blue Sea is better because it does fully commit to its craziness and everything works out. But this this has going for it as well. It's got a very diverse, multi-ethnic cast that is wonderful. All the performers, I, I liked all of them, and I thought it worked really well. It feels to me like it's going for China box office numbers and it's showing that it's going to get them right off the bat from this weekend's numbers that I've seen uh, because it is set over there and it it has a high you know Asian cast uh, addition to it so I, I think that was what their intention was and it's going to pay off and I'm glad I mean it's a lot of fun and I like seeing movies like this that exist and the third one Patrick is completely different again from these first two and that is Dog Days now. Like Christopher Robin, this is another movie that my kids drug me to see. I didn't go free will. I was forced, essentially, or coerced. Sat down. I'm not a dog lover. I don't own a dog. I'm a cat guy. But 
I sat down for this movie, and as soon as I realized the dogs weren't going to talk, that it wasn't that kind of movie, I began to warm up to this. It is one of the sweetest movies I've seen all year, and it's really been the movie of all four of these most recent films, if you count Christopher Robin, that I've probably thought about the most. I don't know what that says about me. Um, I love the performances in this. There's an actor that just really shines to me. He's one of the main leads. He's uh, Nina Dobrev's love interest. I love Nina Dobrev as well. But his name is Tony Bell, and uh, he's got a role in The Flash of recently uh, episodes, and he's wonderful. I just I think he has so much charisma. He really made the movie for me in a lot of ways. But there's also an element to this movie that makes it more than just kind of a silly rom-com. It's all about how the dogs bring people together and how the dogs can be a catalyst in a way for change in these human relationships as they go through their lives, whether it's losing a job or losing a loved one or finding a loved one or finding your purpose. There's all kinds of things that these animals play a role in their owner's lives. And, you know, as a pet owner, I can completely relate to that. Whether it's a dog or a cat, it's kind of similar. And so this was super sweet. And, you know, it has an actor from This Is Us in it. Uh, I can't remember his name. He's amazing. He plays William. But there were moments in this where I legit cried. Like the last third of the movie, I was fighting back or in tears. It is just so heartwarming, so charming, so moving, so touching. And unlike something like Black Klansman that left me feeling kind of miserable about the world and the state of it, I left Dog Days feeling like very hopeful and with an encouragement that people could make good choices and could be good to each other still, that that, that could exist. So I think it's a wonderful family movie, and I, and I would highly, highly suggest families go see it. Well, especially dog lovers. <laughs> Even more so. Yeah, I mean, the dogs are adorable. Don't get me wrong. They're super cute. I, I like that you've actually had this kind of experience this last week because you've, you've experienced three specifically different movies, and you've taken away three specifically different emotional reactions, and they've all been legit validated. One makes you think, one makes, they all make you feel, that's for sure. But this is a, what I think is a really great diverse palette of showing what movies can do for us and the fact that they can make us think, they can make us hope, and they can make us laugh, sometimes all in one. Um, But it's so cool and almost refreshing to have a summer of movies and have movies in general with this kind of diversity that allow us to experience all these different things. So we don't have to always feel one way or the other. And I love that they all came kind of the same time frame uh, in this last week. So you get to experience this wide array of emotions and takeaways. Yeah, me too, man. I I'm really, I was surprised and uh, it just made me happy for moviegoers out there to have so many good options in the middle of the summer and these last or not the middle, but these last few weeks of summer as we're about to head back to school and usually just, there aren't there, but uh, they are now. So yeah, all three of those get a recommendation from me and I say they're worth seeing. 
Well, let's quickly go over our bracket recap challenge. So just to catch you up, listeners, we are just doing a tally of how many wins and losses we get. One point each, one point for every victory, zero points for every loss uh, going through as we complete these four weeks of bracket challenges. In week one, uh, I came out with 12 out of a possible 15 points. Mm -hmm. Patrick, what did you come out with? Nine. Nine out of a possible 15. So right now it is 12 to nine. Aaron is leading. All right. So round one, leading up to the seven samurai selection from our Facebook group. You want me to just list the ones that I got? Or yeah. Yeah, I got. So I got, uh, I got Forrest Gump. Okay. Castaway. Mm-hmm. Missed Big Fish. Okay. Came in for Beetlejuice, which I thought was weird. Uh, I did get Batman, though. I got Ferris Bueller and Breakfast Club, which did not surprise me because I'm a John Hughes guy. So there it is. And then I got Seven Samurai, and I missed um, Yogimbo. Your Jimbo. Jimbo. See, that's why I missed it because I wouldn't have known anything but that. You didn't vote for Rashomon, which is like my favorite uh, Akira Kurosawa movie. Wow. No, that was your favorite. Wouldn't have probably voted for it anyway because it was a toss up for me. Anyway. That's true. All right. So then you missed two, right? Missed two. All right. Well, I missed one. My only miss was the flight castaway matchup. And I picked flight and I was actually really hoping flight would go very far. And that did, didn't happen. All right, so next round, uh, I actually got them all four correct. So I had Gump, Batman, Breakfast Club, and Samurai. I nailed it. Final four. Nice. I only missed one. All right. I missed. Uh, I missed uh, Forrest Gump. I picked Castaway instead. Wow, I am surprised that you did that and didn't pick uh, Gump. Although there was a lot of love in the group for Castaway, we learned. Yeah. So you weren't super far off. Um, in the final two, it ended up being Gump versus Seven Samurai, Patrick, and I picked Batman versus Breakfast Club. So I got none. I was done at this point. Well, I went with what I thought was my gut, and the um, I would have picked Breakfast Club because that's what that would have been a fun one to cover. But I went with my gut and picked Seven Samurai um, and Batman. So I missed Batman too. Oh wow! One. So you got minus one on that one. And then what was your final pick for the winning? Seven Samurai. So you got it. I did get it. I'll be darned. You know what I picked? I picked Batman. Did you really? Yeah. I thought for sure that they were going to come through in the group and be like, oh, we want to do some retro Batman coverage. But no. They, they didn't want that, apparently. They wanted seven. I can't believe it. gum. All right. So I missed four total, which gives me 11 for that round. What about you? I missed four total as well. So 11 for that round. So now it's 23 me to 20 you going into week three, which we will go over next week when we cover the next episode, which rolling into announcements is going to be spirited away. And that was an exciting vote. Let me tell you. So shockingly to me, Ron Howard came out of the top half of the bracket in week three. I don't, I, I was not expecting that. Okay. And, and I certainly just was not expecting it to be Apollo 13. If anything, I thought maybe Willow might like get some crazy run from, you know, older folks or something, but Apollo 13 made a wild run through the bracket and it was Apollo 13 versus spirited way. And at 1159 PM 
on Saturday night, one minute before the votes were going to close, it was tied. And a last final vote got cast for Spirited Away, pushing it over the edge. Uh, so looks like because of that, we will be covering our second Japanese-directed film in a row. And our first ever Miyazaki, which I am extremely excited about. And fitting that it was, was Spirited Away. I think there was a lot of love for, uh, for Totoro that came around. And Rightfully that- so. <laughs> I was a little upset, personally. <laughs> Some of the comments with that, uh, particularly, I guess, the final four were, were, were really uh, hilarious to, to, to read. So, But it didn't surprise me that Spirited Away came, came out on top. Yeah. I was surprised like you that it was up against Apollo 13. Or any, I mean, just the fact that when you have these multitude of directors, you think, oh, it's probably going to be, you know, Fincher. Fincher. All like seven and Zodiac and Fight Club. Apollo 13 beat that bracket. Yeah. I, I don't know, you know. Gone Gar- Girl? Yeah. I don't know how that happened. I really just don't. I just, and the fact that it was high was spirited away at that point, you know, like, in fact, as of recording time, Apollo 13 is ahead because I couldn't close the poll. So like people kept voting even after the deadline and Apollo 13 is actually ahead right now. It just doesn't count because it wasn't by the deadline. So listeners, if you're interested in all of this, please come join us in the Facebook group. You can find a link to that in the show notes. You can find a link to that on our website. You can just type in feel and film Facebook group in the Facebook search bar and you can find it. Request to join. We'll quickly approve you and you can be part of the voting, which starts next week. There's one more round. Uh, it starts on a Wednesday and every, goes every single day through Saturday. And you can help us pick that last Final Four participant. Another announcement we have to make is our August Donor Pick episode has been chosen by our amazing supporters over at Patreon. And we did Tom Clancy movies in honor of the new Jack Ryan TV show that's coming out on Amazon at the end of August. And pretty overwhelmingly, <laughs> this victory came out for the Hunt for Red October. Uh, second place was very close, though. Uh, second place was a tie, like, amongst Patriot Games, um, Clear and Present Danger, and Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit were all right there. They were all almost equal. The only thing that didn't get any votes was The Sum of All Fears, which I don't even remember if I've seen that. I've read the book. That's a Ben Affleck one, right? That's the, that's the solo Ben. Yeah. And then uh, Shadow Recruit was um, Chris Pine. Chris Pine. And it's actually much better than you might think. If you, I, I was put off and didn't watch it right away because I thought it was unnecessary. But when I watched it, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Okay. But okay. Uh, yeah, but we get to talk about the Hunt for Red October. So that should be a lot of fun. Uh, and we are also going to do some bonus content for the month, as always. And we've decided what we'll do is we're going to do a review of the pilot episode of the Jack Ryan TV show. So once that hits on Amazon on August 31st, Within a week or so after that, we'll put out a bonus episode for our patrons. You can become a patron for a dollar a month uh, to become a voter. For $2 or more a month level, you can get access to all of our bonus content. We do something every single month, and you'd have access to all the backlog as well. Patreon.com slash film. Check that out. We would love to have you uh, provide support it's uh we can't say enough about how much it does for us and how grateful we are helps keep us going and keep innovating and keep being better etc um and that's it lastly just uh want to tell you about one of our favorite shows that's in session film brendan and jd actually recently just got done earlier this year doing an entire marathon of episodes on akira kurosawa so this is great timing to recommend them after you hear us go check out their episode on seven samurai or 
Rashomon, which is a slightly better movie, or any of the other films like Yogimbo. Here's a word from them. Hello, everyone. This is JD from the In Session Film Podcast. Each week, we review the latest from Hollywood, California. Well, yes, Brendan. We also give top three lists. Okay. Yeah. Thanks again, Brendan. Additionally, you can hear us talk other movie news, trailers, varying movie series, or other interesting film-related topics, and even rants and raves of the week. On top of our main show, every Friday, you can also hear our extra film podcasts. Uh, you can listen to the In Session Film Podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or at InSessionFilm.com. Listen to the In Session Film Podcast every Monday and Friday. Subscribe today and hear me verbally beat JD like a Cherokee drum. No, 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 no. That's not how this works, <laughs> sir. All right, buddy. Well, with that all out of the way, it's time to get into this heavy thing. I think we've put it off long enough. Uh, it's not going away. It, it is there. It is all three and a half hours of this sucker are sitting there waiting for us to dive into it. We're about to talk about Seven Samurai. Everyone, uh, if you have not seen this film, spoiler alert, I, I recommend it. Uh, go see it. It is worth your three and a half hours to see. Um, it does have a lot to pull out of it. And from just a cinematic history aspect, it's very important and it's worth checking out, but we are going to spoil the heck out of it. So you've been warned. All right, Patrick, here we go. One more takeaways. I've been talking a lot, so why don't you go first? Okay. Well, the word that I pulled out was thorough and I'm not going to lie. Three and a half hours is a lot of movie to take in. Um, we joked a little bit last week and we joked offline about just the, just the amount of movie that this is. I mean, it has an intermission for goodness sake. So it knows that it's a very long movie. And, uh, thankfully the, the intermission was probably what five or 10 minutes worth of the movie. So I got to skip over that. Uh, and the fact that I could watch this, you know, really on demand. I, and, I, and my confession is that I had to break it up into separate viewings, mainly so that I could take in everything that was going on with these different sections and um also so i could keep up with all the characters and the japanese names that with when that went with them so i'm going to go ahead and just give a give a preliminary apology to either mispronouncing or misquoting i will probably end up describing certain samurai as the one who did this i've got three in my head and to me that's that's an a for effort for me like almost half so you're doing well i'm good um, but more than the running time, I think Kurosawa and his team have managed to fit a whole lot of everything that potentially makes what I'm calling a micro epic work on a number of levels. I call it a micro epic because it's not a world changing story. I mean, this is a village of people that are trying to fight off bandits. So in a lot of ways, it's a very small story, but there's so much going on between the samurai and the farmers and the farmers and themselves. And there's a big idea that exists in this small world. And so we get these varying tones from drama to action, to humor. We get character arcs among the farmers and the samurai, and we get a story that seems like it's about one thing, which is this ragtag group of individuals coming to help a village but it's equally about something else. It's those same samurai, those same ragtag samurai coming together as a group and learning about their strengths and weaknesses. And I think that's pretty wonderful. The fact that 
Kurosawa and his team managed to tell a story like that with so much depth, so much emotion, and so much of all these different things within the confines of a story that is pretty, pretty simple. And it goes beyond being entertainment. It's thought provoking. It um, is a really, I mean, this movie's pioneer is a pioneer for a lot of movies that come after it, not just the remakes, but the ideas that exist in a movie like this. And I think that's why it's what you mentioned before. It's an important film. It's kind of like when you want to understand about the history of cars, you start with the model T and it may not be exciting now, or it may not be something that could fit in today, but it's worth looking at where this stuff started. Um, even if you don't like Seven Samurai, even if it's too long, even if you don't like black and white movies, this is something that you want to be able to check out at least once to get an idea of why you enjoy what you enjoy today, because it comes from this place. Very well said, man. Well, my word was inspirational. And uh, I'm going to do this like a chef. I'm going to do inspirational three ways. So Seven Samurai is regarded as the film that started this assembling the team trope that we've seen done over and over and spawned many remakes and reimaginings like the Magnificent Seven, Galaxy Quest, Three Amigos, and A Bug's Life, even, from Pixar, where an outside group of mercenaries is hired to come in and protect an isolated community from a superior force. That's pretty much the way it can be broken down. But that's not to mention its technical achievements for the time. Um, even if you've never seen this, like you were mentioning, Patrick, you have witnessed its influence in action in other movies that you have seen. So I also think it's inspirational in how it depicts honorable men willing to lay their life on the line for the less capable. That's a big deal running through the theme of this film that is highly resonating with me. Uh, and the third thing is that it was a film the likes of which the world had never before seen. It was it was a first in a lot of different ways. Um, with Kurosawa, he utilized detailed research techniques to make up one of the most accurate period pieces to that point. And it really did inspire future filmmakers um, for how they went about making movies. Also, when asked to describe what kind of film he made, Kurosawa had what I think is really the perfect response. And he said, a movie as rich as buttered steak topped with grilled eel. So I guess that kind of is a fourth inspirational thing because honestly, I'm inspired to go eat something super fancy and delicious now. <laughs> Yes, sir. Well, with that said, let's start real quick with a couple definitions. Um, I, I will be honest. I did not know what a samurai was. I knew that it was a warrior in J Japanese history who wore armor, had a sword, and possibly was a defender of good. And that's about as far as I knew. Um as should opposed, be enough to enjoy the movie, right? It should be yeah, enough. as opposed to a ninja, which was usually bad and a little bit more flexible, less warrior, more athlete. I'm not sure. Or more uh, black. <laughs> yeah. So a couple quick definitions. One is that samurai were actually the military nobility of Japan. 
and the nobility is a key part here. They were not only warriors, but they were held an important and high position in the caste system. So this wasn't just a job, right? This was like a level of actual importance. This was, this was like being upper class versus middle class or lower class. Um, there was a difference there. Also mentioned in this film is the Ronin, which again, I did not know the distinction here, but a Ronin was a drifter or a wanderer. So basically a samurai without a lord or master. So since the samurai were warriors, they typically were warriors for a lord or they would serve someone. But many of the ones we're seeing in this film are ronin at the time. They do not have someone to serve. So that was interesting. Um, one thing I read when I was doing some research, Patrick, is that samurai films had really not been in existence for a while. Um, they had ceased to be made. And Kurosawa kind of brought them back. And the reason for that was that during the occupation of Japan by U.S. forces uh, following its surrender after World War II, samurai films just kind of fell out of favor. And a big part of that was because the U.S. political machine looked very unkindly on the samurai code, which was called Bushido. Um, and that required allegiances to that the, the samurai's lord and master that we just talked about above all else. Well, that doesn't jive well with our ideas of the republic and democracy. So as a result, uh, a gap exists in the long history of samurai films in Japanese cinema. And this film, which came out in 1954, not only brought samurai films back, but also remade the image of a samurai hero to make them more accessible for people like us who come from that democratic background. He was also able to mix in um, a new focus of this democratic um, ideals that we we have, such as you know the individuality themes that are involved here, the greater class mobility, uh, and loyalty to personal morality over loyalty to leaders, which we see play out in the film. So some of the older traditions of samurai films. Um, were also there and they would, you know, help this to become a hugely popular film in Japan. Uh, he achieved this film's fame, not only in his own country, but expanded it um, outside of Japan. He already had a growing reputation and this just kind of pushed that forward um, as one that kind of reflected post-war values. So, so as someone who is, Confession, this is the first Kurosawa film that I've seen. So this is me entering into the world of, of his direction and his filmmaking. Where did the other ones land? Do they do they continue this kind of theme? Does he just kind of expand on samurai? How does that all work in some of his other in some of his other movies? That's a great question. Uh, Rashomon is not really uh, about this so much as it's more of um kind of a cinematic technique deal where it's all about the same murder has been occurred and we watch this play out from three or so different perspectives. Okay. And we're trying to figure out like, it's an unreliable narrator type concept. You would really enjoy Rashomon. Um, I have not seen other films, so okay. I can't tell you. I think Yojimbo has some samurai influence in it. Uh, Ran, I definitely know has heavy samurai influence in it. Actually, oh, I think back. I have seen Ran. I just watched it recently. 
Um, it's about uh, a samurai lord who is retiring and passing on the crown to his son, the ruling, uh, the the high the highest aged of his sons, and they all have castles, and so he passes it on and things start to fall apart because the son doesn't want to rule the way he wants him to rule. And then he wants to retain control, but he kind of gave it up. And so it's this, it's a very interesting look at that whole cast system and how it worked between the Lord and the master with the samurais. Okay. But I don't, I, I'm assuming it's a reoccurring theme throughout most of his films. Okay. So the big idea, Patrick, in this movie at least that I would say is the big idea is kind of unity and the nature of war. And this is the quote that stuck out to me more than anything else. Early in the film, when Kanbai is addressing the villagers, I believe it might be the first time they've just arrived. He tells them, this is the nature of war by protecting others. You save yourself. If you think of yourself, you'll only destroy yourself. Okay. Okay. That's heavy. It's deep. It's wise. It's iconic. <laughs> it is. It is very iconic. And it is the thing that I remember most about this movie. Um, this and kind of the last cinematic shot. So my question is, do you think that this quote kind of explains well why the samurai are there? And also, do you agree with this line of reasoning? Well, I'll answer the second question first. I definitely agree that what he's saying holds a lot of weight. And this goes back to our conversation on gladiator. And again, the influence that um, I've had from uh, the, this book by Simon Sinek called leaders eat last with regards to taking care of each other and the value, not just of teamwork, but of camaraderie and being able to, from the top down, be reassured that as a person, I know that the guy at the very top has my back equally as much as I have his and that we have each other's back. We take care of each other. There's this circle of safety that Cynic talks about in his book. And I think that exists here. And I think Kenbai is really trying to say that he's not talking about just saving your skin. He's talking about the value of the village, the value of everyone inside this conflict. And I love the multiple layers of that of of applicable nature that this speech has because it's between the farmers from all over the village as we see i think it's just a moment later when they tell the farmers hey we're gonna if you live in these houses across the way you're gonna have to abandon them because we can't save those and you have that ragtag group that tries to escape and i think it's Kambai who comes by with his sword and basically chases them back into the group. So there's, there's that, then there's the, that, uh, that applicableness between the farmers and the samurai. You know, you talked earlier about this caste system and, and that plays heavily into this movie where you have this group of farmers who are at one level politically, socially, and then you have the samurai who exist at another level. And so there's a sense of unification that he's asking for between these groups because they have to work together. Can't just be the samurai doing all the work. And then finally, it's between the samurai themselves. As we find out throughout the movie, the recruitment of these samurai, which I think is probably one of my favorite sequences, is how all these samurai come together. And seeing these different personalities, we get a sense of 
the need to deal with each other's strengths and weaknesses among the samurai because they all have something different to bring to the table. And so Kenbai's speech is so universal across all of these different personalities and all these different groups. And I think that Kurosawa does that intentionally because he says it's not just about one group. And it's not just about the individuals. I mean, Kenbai is saying this about everybody. And so for me, I definitely agree with that statement. Even today, more so than in the movie, not just in the movie, but but even today that if you're not taking care of each other, you're really just living on your own and you're weaker because of that. Yeah, for sure. And, I, and one thing I really enjoyed is there's a, a brief moment of uh, town council meeting right after they've learned of the bandits that they're going to come back. And you realize just how small this village is. I mean, there's not a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I like this concept of like, they all come together and they make decisions together for their livelihood. And they kind of, you know, try to figure it out. Do we fight and risk death or do we give up the grain and risk starving? You know, when they set out to go get the samurai, they do so by pay. The only thing they have is grain, right? The only resource they have is their food. And that stuck out to me because it's not something that we can relate to, right? And that's, that's where one of those story points comes from where we, you were referencing how it's interesting to look back and, and you know, historically, you can see this era that we will never be able to understand fully because we don't have to live like this. But these people, the only currency they have is their own food, right? And I, I think of this as a board gamer in terms of a board game mechanic, honestly, where it's one of my favorite ones. It's a very high-risk type of game where when you're earning victory points that will ultimately be the determination of who wins – that your victory points are also your currency or your money. So you have to spend them during the game to potentially get more in the end. And that's what the samurai, not the samurai, that's what the villagers have to do here. They have to spend their grain one way or the other. It's all they have to offer, right? And then the samurai, conversely, they're not looking for money. Like they just, they're looking for food to be able to live. So they're doing this job just for food. I mean, that's pretty heavy. That's, uh, That's not much payback. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, if it were money, there would be a lot more versatility with that. Whereas if it's just rice, if it's just barley, if it's just the things that you live off of, you've already taken out that level of options when it comes to, okay, if I give you 10 coins, you can use that coin to buy armor. You can use that coin to buy food or clothing. These guys are going right to the source. The farmers, all they have is just that it's food. And food can either, you can survive on it or you can die because of a lack of it. And I think it's a very powerful thing for them to say, all we have is yours for the sake of protecting our livelihood. And it's a very strategic move because at this point, it's it's not really a risk necessarily because they're like, we're going to lose it anyway. If we have all this rice, it'll either go to the bandits and we won't get anything. We'll starve or we'll give it to the samurai and still risk living at that point. So in some ways it is a risk because they're losing it, but I think it's what do we have to lose is what they're thinking about when they, when they give it over to the samurai to, to help protect them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's very good. And and they're giving over their own 
like they there's a there's a fight still they don't necessarily quickly agree to do what the samurai want them to do right there's moments in this film where they are resistant as villagers you know they they have to be convinced to fight or convinced to do certain certain things a certain way there's a great line i don't remember who says it should have written it down of course but he says but when you think you're safe is precisely when you're the most vulnerable and i was like man that's 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 timeless right there um it's very very true um and then one of my favorite moments by the way is when they capture the bandit and the townsfolk are about to kill him and Kambai comes out and he's like, no, 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 no. That's not how we do things. Like that's, that's not what we're going to do. Um, he screams, he says, they can't kill him out of anger. Don't, you can't do this. And all we see is this old mother kind of like somberly, you know, stumbling her way toward the center of town with a hoe and a garden hoe and everybody kind of parts ways and we don't see it. This is Kurosawa's brilliance here we don't see this happen we don't see her hacking him up but we know what just happened right and one of the characters even mentions like this is his mom like she's she's looking for revenge for her murdered son and it just kind of takes place um where combat was trying to fight that but there's there's this this challenging of ideas Mm -hmm. that happens a lot between the two groups yeah there's definitely a mob mentality that is offset by the um, ominousness of the samurai. And, and I like that contrast. I like that Kurosawa shows us that where you have, it's, you have samurai who come in and they're not the rescuers. They are the leaders. They come in and, and create balance. They create stability uh, from a strategic standpoint I think that the tone that they set when they come into the village is one that is initially out of fear because I know some of the villagers are like, hide your daughters because these samurai are going to come after them. But for the most part, the villagers are like, Hey, these guys are here to take care of us. And they help set a set a tone of confidence of hope. And so it's interesting to see that scene take place because it's consistent. It's consistent in that, Kenbai is like, no, that's not what we do. Yet Kurosawa doesn't end the scene that way. He shows that mob mentality. He shows that the villagers are still out for revenge. And particularly in this scene, I think somebody says, who will help her avenge her son's death? And it's one of our main villagers. I can't remember his name. Maybe it's... um, Rikichi, maybe? I think it's Rikichi. And he says, oh, I will. And again, it's consistent my mouth dropped whenever I saw that scene play out because I was like, Oh my gosh, this old lady is going to hack this dude to pieces Mm -hmm. and other people are actually willingly going to help her. Mm -hmm. I'm glad we didn't get to see that because that would have been even more so just kind of shocking, but it's definitely consistent in showing the mentality and the attitudes of the samurai and the villagers. So one thing that I think we also see in the movie and largely played out through uh, Kikuchayo, at the very least, is this search for identity. He's this bumbling fool of a, of a character 
kind of seemingly at odds with his destiny in a way or his talent and, and how he's going to live his life and what the choices he makes are going to be. Did you pick up on that at all? It's... Yeah, I think he is, uh, he is one of the standout characters of the samurai and it's because he's loud and obnoxious and arrogant and very much one of your more aggressive characters, not just samurai, but, but characters in the entire in the entire movie. And we find out later on uh, that he isn't a real samurai. In fact, early on we're hinted at that because he has that fake kind of scroll that says, you know, here's my, here's my lineage. And the other samurai call him out and saying, well, that makes you 13 years old, according to this piece of paper. And he could, his character is early on played as a joke. In fact, when they're going to the village, he is, um, he is at a distance. There's a great shot that it shows him at a distance with his samurai sword just being balanced on his shoulder. I thought that was pretty fantastic. I just, I love the shot, but it shows this distance between him and the rest of the samurai to really reinforce the fact that he's not one of them. He's not a true samurai. And so the whole rest of the movie, one of the character arcs that I gravitated towards was his because he takes his aggression. He takes who he is, his history, and he turns it and makes it beneficial for the cause. Um, he's the one that inspires the villagers early on, either through early on through fear, but later on just through a general motivation. And I found it really, really cool to contrast his character with Katsushiro, who grew up as a samurai, but who doesn't come across as that kind of confident samurai like he it's almost like you have this farmer that has strong samurai tendencies and you have the samurai who has more soft farmer like tendencies and so right. like if you put them together you'd have a great samurai and a great farmer <laughs> and a great farmer <laughs> so so right and and i i, I want to say that was intentional i think kurosawa really puts those two not against each other but he he positions them next to each other a lot of times to show here's the potential of one and here's the influence of your past based on your samurai past or your village past and how that influences you going forward. And um, you could do a whole study just on those two characters. Yeah. They're also the two characters that fall in love. In my opinion, you have obviously Katsushiro and, and he is part of the love story with Shiro, the village girl who's abusive father cuts her hair off. And that's a whole other angle and, and topic that there was a little bit I was glad honestly that that didn't go more in depth <laughs> it was it was awkward for me um, I was not happy seeing the way the father treated her but at the same time it was hard not to understand you know he in his opinion in his mind in his history he knew these people to be through rumor uh, people who were judged to rape or just take the women that they chose. And so he was trying to protect his daughter and that gave it a little bit of an interesting spin when he's kind of forcing her to cut her hair off and hiding her because he doesn't want them to find her and stuff. But anyway, Katsushiro and, and her relationship, which is interesting by the way, and this is weird. His name is Katsushiro and her name is Shiro. So her name is literally in his name. I'm sure that I, means nothing. I thought it was Shino. Is it Shino? I think it's Shino. Well, that ruins everything. 
So, so she needs to change her name. Let me just delete that bullet point right there. <laughs> Let's just she can just change her name and it'll all be fine. Okay. Anywho, <laughs> he falls in love with her, and it's all about him kind of wrestling with that and trying to balance that with his samurai responsibilities. And then Kikachayo has kind of fallen in love with this idea of being heroic or fulfilling that role for the villagers. Like he wants that recognition. He wants to do mm-hmm. something and be remembered. He's fallen in love with the idea of being remembered in a way. Yeah. Um, and so they, they also have that in common in a sense. Well, exactly. And I think that what makes him appealing is because of the place that he comes from. Like he wasn't given the role of samurai. He's essentially earning it, whether legally or ethically or whatever. I mean, he's not, he doesn't come from a family of samurai. So he's working towards that. And I think by the end of the film, he, to me, seems like the one that has grown into the world, that role of samurai the most authentically because he's rounded out his character. He goes from just being aggressive and selfish to being confident and as a leader able to influence those around him. There's a great scene in the back half of the movie where he is, um, motivating the farmers. So there's this group of farmers that are holding those spears and he's like, I want to hear you start yelling louder. You know, this is essentially just kind of getting them hype. And the other little battalions, the other little pockets of samurai that are leading their little groups hear that. And they're like, yes, we should motivate our guys too. And you contrast that early on with the scene where he's almost getting mad at these farmers who are, bumbling fools because they're not real good soldiers. And he's basically saying, you guys need to get it together. So seeing the way in which he leads, how that changes over the course of the movie is incredibly encouraging. And I think it speaks to one of the themes that Kurosawa is saying is your identity is really something that can be adaptable. It's something that can grow. And if you really want to grow into this particular role, you have to be able to kind of deal with those struggles and embrace the fact that you have strengths and weaknesses because those things are what make you who you are. Yeah, definitely. I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, do you have any favorite characters? Anybody else we haven't really talked about? I mean, Kikuchayo and you know Katsushiro are, are two of the main ones that get more screen time than the others. Yeah. Does anybody else like stick out to you? So two, so two, uh, Cam okay. is a, uh, is a quote machine. I could basically just kind of take out every quote, every line of his in this movie and give it to my, uh, my team and say, here, be inspired because it seems like everything he says is, is very motivational. But the one samurai that stood out outside of, of that, of those three is, is Kaiuzo. And in particular, there's one scene that I absolutely adore. And it's just after he's come back from getting the musket Oh, and he hands off the musket and he goes to sit down and he puts his samurai sword, I think on his right shoulder and he just starts to go to sleep. And it's like business as usual. Again, contrasting that with Kikachuo, who is like, Oh, I want to, you know, I want the glory from getting a musket. This guy was just like, I'll go get it. 
He did it, came back. There was no glory. There was no fanfare. And the response by Katsushiro to him was so sincere and just amazingly just, I don't know how to describe it. It was just a really tender moment where he goes, I am in awe of you. I am so proud to know you. And he walks away and you see this small little grin come across Cayuzo's face. And then he closes his eyes and just goes to sleep to get some rest because that's not his, I mean, his, his role, his desire is not to get glory. His desire is just to be who he is. Mm -hmm. Um, He is a loner, but among this ragtag group of samurai, he strengthens the group through that kind of quiet leadership by just going out and doing what he's supposed to do and seeing Katsushiro's reaction to that, I think really amplifies it. I love him. And I love him because of his standout scene when we first meet him. You know, we're, we're told he's <laughs> yeah. a master swordsman when we're being introduced to him. And he's out in a field and there's this other samurai. And it is no different than the Wild Wild West. It is no different than today on the street. It is people comparing the size of their shoes and who's got bigger shoes and, uh, you know, who's the bigger man. And so this guy is just pushing him, pushing him. And so he's like, fine. And so they... They duel and he wins and the other guy does not want to accept it. And so he wants to fight for real, draws his sword. And what I love the most is Kaizo is he wants no part of this, right? He is walking away. He is trying not to. And he says to the the guy, he says, don't throw your life away. He tells him, he's like, don't do this. I don't want to do this. And the guy just keeps on and keeps on. And so it's like he has this, value system of the samurai but he's not at the same time he's fighting against it because he has his own virtues but ultimately he will abide by the samurai rules when push comes to shove and so he he goes about it and he does the duel and it is just one swipe it is the most anticlimactic thing and that's part of what i took away from this viewing is the battles in general like it is not exciting it's not like watching the raid Okay, it's not like watching Kill Bill uh, or a Tarantino movie of some sort. Like, it's not that crazy. People aren't flipping around and flying around, Patrick. They are just, it is one dude rushes and one dude's a little bit faster and a little bit more perfectly timed and one cut, boom. And and I love that his opponent falls in slow motion and then hits the ground and the dust comes up. It's just, and and you can tell that he's, disappointed he's sad that he had to do that so i i love that scene from him mm-hmm. um, and then combi <laughs> is my other one as well like he is fantastic i would follow this guy anywhere like he is so inspirational um you know he is a quote machine like you said when when kikachayo is out there trying to get the musket and he gets scolded for leaving his post. He says, there's nothing heroic about seeking self glory. He reiterates that. Right. And he's trying to teach them that their actions are seeking self glory, even if they don't realize that that's what they're doing. So he is such a great teacher. He's so patient. And then the strategy that is involved, um, particularly in the setup for how they defend the village I love – we talked about this last year, last week in, in uh, the Gladiator episode. How I loved them kind of making a playbook of – or no, it was an Edge of Tomorrow episode. How they made a playbook uh-huh. uh, you know, of, of what they were going to do on the beach. Well, they did the same thing here. It's like they're drawing it out. 
like, okay, what can we do here? And what can we use? What resources do we have? He's very tactically minded and you can tell he's experienced in warfare. And then kind of with that tactical, strategical way of thinking that leads us to the team up aspect of the film, right? And we both said we like that a lot and it's done in such a fun way, such a memorable way in this movie where Kumbai has the potential new samurai to join them coming into a room. So how did you feel about all of that? Did you like this? Yeah, I thought it was Uh, wonderful. I thought it just, and it, it amplifies these personality types and it gives us insight into each of the characters as they go through this test, I guess you could call it. Uh, Katsushiro, I think he stands out because he thinks, he thinks he's got the, the leg up on these samurai when in fact he doesn't. And so that says a lot about him. It says a lot about the samurai as they walk in and they know what Kambai is doing. And so there's this great mixture of comedy and drama and some action here and there. And it's a, it takes time. And I think that that's something that we we miss a lot when we try to pack something into a two-hour movie. That's part of the reason why I like the lengthy running time because we get a chance to live in these moments. Because this is how this is how it would play out. It's a it's a dramatic way to let us live in these moments of understanding each character as they come into this this group because that's what's going to become the most important is the group itself. So it's both entertaining and educational at the same time, because we get so much information about each samurai, even though maybe one or two stand out more as the movie goes on, but we get enough information that we can see the diversity among each of them. It's not just seven, it's not just seven samurai who all do the same thing and have the same skill set. No, they're all completely different in their own way. They have different personalities. They have different approaches to how they look at their uh, their samurai history, if they have any. And um, it, it really comes across as uh, as a really cool way to tell it, tell a story. I agree wholeheartedly. I love it. And when it first happens, I'm like, what is going on? I'm caught off guard by this like trick they're doing. And then you realize it and it's like this test. And, you know, the first one to join him is Gorobai, who ends up being his like first lieutenant. And I really enjoy it because they become such fast friends and you can tell like they share this value system and what he tells Kambai is he he tells him that his character is the most appealing thing and that sometimes you find friends in the strangest of places and i was just really drawn to that right away like he he knew what Kambai was doing with that test and immediately he was like i get it i agree with it you're the bomb like i will follow you you know like i'm there um, and so I just thought it was a fantastic way of, of going about it and, um, and very interesting from a movie perspective as well, you know, on the side, like not just tactically speaking, but entertainment value wise. All right. Well, this film, as we've talked about, has inspired a ton of reimaginings and remakes. And I know you probably haven't seen all of these, but I'm curious if you picked out any comparisons from other Seven Samurai inspired movies. I know you've seen Mag Seven. I'm sorry, I didn't even want to bring it up because I don't like it. But 
there are parallels in that one as well because it's based on the Magnificent Seven, which was based on Seven Samurai. So I was just wondering if you recognized anything in this movie that made you go, oh, I remember that from a previous film that I'd seen that came after it. In, in all honesty, I had it I, I, because I haven't seen Mag 7 in a while and I still have not seen the original Magnificent Seven, which is on my to-do list to watch with my dad at some point pretty soon. Um, I didn't pick up anything specifically. I did catch some of the similarities between how the team comes together and amplifying the diversity of the, of the group. Um, and I think what stands out to me more than anything is that diversity and the fact that you have, in particular, you have a Chris Pratt character that lives in, in, in this world as well. Maybe not one for one, but you have a, a character like, I think it's, um, is it Hihachi? Hihachi? He's the comedian of the group, and he's the one that ends up sacrificing himself uh, for Rikishi during the the big fire, you know, the big burning scene where um, his his wife is in the in the uh, the what is it? I can't remember what it is. Anyway, the villagers or the the bandits hide out, and so he ends up sacrificing himself, and so his his death is felt. And I felt a similarity between that and. Chris Pratt's character as he kind of sacrifices himself in the most recent mag seven. I think that was the biggest thing that I pulled from that. Well, that's awesome. I I figured you might. And then there's also the way in which the rifles get put in the ground uh, is very reminiscent of the famous scene in this, where they're putting swords in the mounds of dirt up on the hill. Oh yeah. Of the great sites. That's a very iconic thing that is remade. Um, if you watch, there, there's a ton of similarities in the way that the characters play out. Like you said, um, there are definitely comparisons there as well. And then there's, there's also scenes that are pulled directly. Now, one that I find very intriguing is a bug's life. I've always thought it was the same story. And so I rewatched it this weekend um, out of fun. I wanted to see how much it does actually hold up. Is it really this story? And it's not perfectly a retelling, but if you think about it, it is crazy similar. So in a bug's life, we have ants that provide food for the grasshoppers and the grasshoppers like go after the ants. The ants are the villagers, the grasshoppers are the bandits. Well, they don't get the food that they want. They want more. And so they tell them they're coming back at the end of the season. Similar concept. Now the villagers have to scramble. Do we give away our own food and starve to the bandits? Or do we go get help? And so the ants do that. They go seek out help. And just like Rikichi is the villager who decides like we've got to go i've got to go do this flick the ant goes off on this journey he walks and he discovers this new big metropolis city of bugs just like rikichi discovers this big new city that's it's much more large and uh, bustling than his tiny little village he's mesmerized by it just like rikichi is in seven samurai it continues uh they also have the ants drawing up plans for a bird and for defense going through these strategic planning sessions, just like the samurai do in the village. They have the grasshoppers attacking in bad weather and they attack in a very foggy, hazy night. And it ends up raining just like happens in seven samurai in the final battle. 
it's really, really cool. Flick the ant makes a big mistake, just like Kikuchayo does, and comes back later to redeem that mistake and be the hero to take out the bandit leader or take out Hopper, in this case, the leader of the grasshoppers. I mean, it's pretty deep, man. Even as far as there's a fake bird, which is kind of like a fake samurai as a scarecrow, if you think about it. So I'm saying it. Bugs Life is basically a remake of a Seven Samurai. And I love it. So, yeah. It's inspired all kinds of movies. Even Pixar ones. <laughs> and the Three Amigos, too. I, I picked up on that. I was reading a little bit about the uh, the way in which our, our three characters inspire the villagers to come together and and take down uh, El Guapo and his gang. So even from a comedic standpoint the the themes and the the actions and all that stuff from seven samurai exists in a movie as goofy as the three amigos i thought that was pretty great all right well one more question we had that that i wanted to talk it through is there's a quote by Kanbai at the end of the movie he says so again we are defeated the farmers have won not us and this comes a little bit after he's actually told gorobai again we survive so when the battle is first over he tells gorobai again we have survived we live another day. We've we've won, essentially. But then he kind of reverses course, and he says this, this again, we are defeated. The farmers have won, not us. Do you have any thoughts on that, on what he might mean by why he doesn't consider this a victory for the samurai? I think on a surface level, obviously losing some of the samurai in battle would be a reason why he might say that, although that should be expected. I mean, he would be a leader who would expect there to be casualties in in war. But I think more so it's the fact that as samurai, they are never going to be done with what they're being asked to do. I mean, they're always going to be in battle doing something. And so they've essentially accomplished what they were asked to accomplish. And now it's time to move on. So for the farmers, their battle is won. but for the samurai, this is just another notch in their belt to say, okay, what's next? How do we, what do we do next? Because in the world of samurai, I don't think the war is ever over. The fact that they are um, part of that political structure, the fact that they are you know, part of that military um, system they, their job is never over. And so for him, I think while they have accomplished what they were asking to accomplish, they were asked to accomplish, they are not going to find rest because they're going to be asked again and they're going to have to do something else. Yeah, that's a, that's a good interpretation of that. I don't know that I really had one. I I heard it and when he said that, I kind of, Double to double take. I was like, "Hmm, that's odd." Like, why would you say you're defeated? Maybe because they didn't all survive. Maybe because as a group they were not successful, and therefore their complete unity of a team does not get to move on and go forward. Whereas the village still survives, even if a few villagers didn't make it. Uh, but I'm not really sure. I mean, what you're explaining there makes sense, though. Uh, to me. So, I mean, that might be it. That really, that really might be it. I mean, that's probably the best way to read it 
is that they're going to have to go on, that it's not over for them. It's, it's not the end. And for the villagers in theory, it is, and unless another set of bandits comes along at least. Um, you know, I wanted to also say quickly though, as much as I respect this movie, there is a difficulty that comes with rewatching some of these classical films and specifically foreign films. I know that I personally do not enjoy them as well. So when I am watching this, it's harder for me to find an emotional connection. I don't latch on to the acting style, the exaggerated, um, loud rambunctiousness of, you know, Kikuchayo and, and the way that his character plays out. I mean, you'd think that I would like it because he's very much almost like an anime character <laughs> in live action. But there's something about going through it this time that was a struggle for me. And it's, it's not because I don't respect it. It's not because I don't understand its place in history. It's not because I don't think that it's a, a good story, but it was not captivating to me in the way that I think people talk about this film being. And I just wondered how your experience was from that perspective, because this is one of the first ones like this that you've seen. I know, um, you know, can, can you separate that appreciation of it versus enjoyment of it? Yeah, I can. And I'm okay saying that I don't like a movie. And at the same time saying, I respect what it does. When you pioneer something, the risk you take is that you date yourself and it doesn't make your product bad. It doesn't make your product um, worthless. Again, going back to the, the idea of the first motorized vehicle, the Model T is never going to compare itself to a Dodge Viper today. I mean, in a lot of ways, the, the Viper or a, a Ford F-150 will blow it out of the water. But those cars can't exist. Those vehicles can't exist without the innovations that went into that first vehicle. And I think what Kurosawa does here is he lays down a template for some of our, our favorite movie experiences, whether it's Magnificent Seven or A Bug's Life or The Three Amigos or any team-up movie. I mean, heck, The Fast and the Furious could take some of its roots from this movie. And I, I love the fact that I was watching this with my wife. And when I say watching this with my wife, I meant that she was laying on the couch opposite me, not watching the movie and just hearing the dialogue. And of course it's all subtitled. And she's like, why do you, why are you watching a movie where people just yell? <laughs> They're yelling and screaming. And I'm like, that's a very true statement. This movie, if it could be characterized by two things, it's about running and yelling. That's really what you have is an abundance of both of those things. And so there's a lot of exaggeration and things that as a modern day film enthusiast, I can't get behind. I can't really enjoy from a cinematic standpoint, three and a half hours. That's a lot of time for me to dedicate into something that's going to be a slow burn, but the respect that I have for it and the fact that I look at that and go, I wouldn't enjoy the movies I enjoy today without the footprint that Kurosawa left with the Mag with with seven samurai, so there's definitely a separation of being able to respect something without ne necessarily having to fully enjoy it, and I think that's okay. I think we need to be okay with saying, "Not my cup of tea." Probably won't watch it again, but absolutely, I would recommend everybody watch it once 
if for no other reason than to see where the enjoyment of the films that you like come from. Perfectly said. Thank you. That's I'm so glad that you were able to articulate that because I feel exactly the same as you do. Do you want to see any new remakes of The Seven Samurai? I actually would. That's the that's the one thing I pulled away from this was the fact that I would love to see a modern day version of this complete with updated choreography, a little bit more drama here and there. I think it could be done. I think there's a lot here, maybe not in a three and a half hour time frame, maybe truncate that just a little bit. But I think there's so much here that I enjoyed in its pieces and parts that if you put this in a 2018, 2020 modern day kind of structure, I mean, that modern day is in like the time period, but if you updated it with the types of choreography and special effects that exist, with the amount of talent that we have from the director pool that we that we enjoy, like Chris Nolan and uh, Quentin Tarantino, I think you could get a really successful update to a movie like this and not lose what it brings to the table. I think you could get both. Yeah, I can see that. I think I would definitely watch it. I'm not a huge samurai flick guy in general, so I'm not sure that I would gravitate toward it in the way that I do other films regardless, but I would be intrigued to see how this played uh, in a more modern, with a more modern take on it. Well, if you are ready uh, to get into connecting points, let's go ahead and do that. I know I had a couple different possibilities to choose from before I, I finally settled on one. Do you want to share yours first? I sure will. All right. I mentioned a little bit of this earlier, but the connecting point for me was uh, Kikichio's rant after delivering the captured samurai armor. And I wanted to just quote a little bit of what he says. Um, And depending on, I guess, what version of the DVD you have, the translation might be a little bit mixed. So this is in general kind of what the subtitles told me, not necessarily what I gleaned from knowing the little Japanese that I know. Uh, He says, what do you think of farmers? You think they're saints? Ha, they're foxy beasts. They say, we've got no rice. We've got no wheat. We've got nothing. But they have. They have everything. Dig under the floors or search the barns. You'll find plenty. Beans, salt, rice, sake. Look in the valleys. They've got hidden warehouses. They pose as saints, but are full of lies. If they smell a battle, they hunt the defeated. They're nothing but stingy, greedy, blubbering, foxy, and mean. Damn it all. But then, who made them such beasts? And he's pointing to the samurai. You did. You, samurai, did it. You burn their villages, destroy their farms, steal their food, force them to labor, take their women, and kill them if they resist. So what should farmers do? And then he leaves. And it's this moment where we find out that he was born a farmer, where he has his past. And I like this moment because it gives agency to his anger and bitterness. And it also makes him almost a link between the samurai and the farmer. He exists in these two worlds, I think not quite embracing either the samurai or the farmer. But in my opinion, it's what makes him one of the more important characters in the film because he's not only a bridge between those two classes, but for us as an audience, he serves as a bridge between us and this world that we're watching. And I think that it gives him a lot more weight. I think it brings him to the forefront as saying, oh, you know what? 
he's not just a bumbling idiot. He's not just trying to be something he's not. He has this past that he's trying to overcome and he understands the world of the farmer. And I love the fact that he, he, he calls the samurai. He says, you, he doesn't say we, he actually says you. And in that moment, we actually see that separation that he's going, he's embracing that farmer side of him. And it's such a, a visceral moment. It's such a vulnerable moment for him. And of course he runs out and he runs away, but um, I think it, it, it's very tender and it's one of these moments that we don't get to see a lot of his character. And, and I loved it. Well, that's good stuff, man. I'm glad you read the quote too. Cause uh, I'm not sure if listeners have seen this recently and besides the subtitles. So I'm glad that you read it and you did, you did it justice. You didn't try to <laughs> overly accent it either. <laughs> How could I? I wonder. <laughs> well, my connecting point is the final battle and pretty much everything that it entails, but particularly the bandit leader's death. There's so much weight to this moment uh, when Ketsushiro, who has the night before consummated this love that's been growing between he and Shino, is shot from afar by the bandit leader. And there's such an emotional connection here because we as an audience feel this potential loss because his value was made explicit just few scenes earlier when Kambai brings him over to the group and he says, by the way, we expect much of you today. So then this tragedy and this tragic moment happens. And of course he doesn't die, but we don't know that. And Kikachayo, who sees this, he, he flies into rage again. And we've seen him make mistakes earlier, but he doesn't hesitate. He reacts frantically, but he redeems himself. And he rushes headlong into the gunfire to protect and avenge his friends. And he dies heroically um, after facing off with the bandit leader, like head-to-head, sword versus steel, or sword versus gunpowder, and emerges victorious. And I I loved the way that this went down. I feel like when, if someone was to tell me that a a final face-off in a movie was going to be a samurai, you know, with underwear on and a sword versus a guy decked out in full armor with a musket. That would not sound like it was going to be interesting, but the way it plays out here is so not focused on the action. It's focused on the emotional aspect of what is taking place and what it means. And so it was very powerful for me and just the kind of parallel there, the the analogy or whatever you want to call it of how steel is beating gunpowder in that moment when for so long in this movie, the samurai have kind of been held in check by the gunpowder and the technology aspect of the, the modern world that is moving on, the bandits are embracing, but they come out victorious. And it's because of Kikuchayo, because he does the thing that he he is himself. It's, it's by acting like himself and acting on his instincts that he becomes a samurai in this moment and, and acts heroically. And so I Absolutely. loved it. I thought it was amazing. Um, it got me a little bit, you know, teary. And I, I just really loved it. And, you know, he, his character, he's played by a, a Japanese iconic actor, um, Tafune 
Mitsushi or I don't know his name. Mifune. I don't know his name. See, this is why we shouldn't do this when we don't know their names. But <laughs> look him up because he's been in lots of Kurosawa films and a, a ton of other stuff. But he's he's one of their absolute greatest actors uh, to ever come out of Japan. So um, Very cool. no surprise here when you see his performance. All right, man. Well, this has been fun. It's a challenge, but it was a good one. And I am glad that we got to go through this. I'm excited for next week and a little bit of Miyazaki love, which I know we will have. Where can people find you online in the meantime, if they would like to chat with you about Seven Samurai or any other movies that we have covered or anything? Yeah, you can look for me on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. And you can find me at Twitter on on Twitter at Feelin Film Aaron uh, or at Feelin Film. You can also find me in the Facebook group along with Patrick there. If you at us, it's a lot easier for us to know that you're talking to us. So we will come and communicate accordingly. But we would love to have you join that group we talked about earlier and just come be a part of the conversation that's ongoing every single week. We thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Seven Samurai on the episode in general. Uh, and or anything at all that you would like to share looking forward to next week hope you'll join us for that one too until then stay positive and keep feeling film